Hallelujah. Amen. As the choir goes down and takes your seat, let's continue with the mind of thanksgiving. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. How many of you believe that he is good today? Let's give the Lord a hand clap. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. The psalmist said, I will bless the Lord at all times, that his words will continually be on my lips. He didn't say, I'll bless the Lord at Thanksgiving. He said, I'll bless the Lord at all times. And he didn't say, I'll bless the Lord when I'm feeling good. He said, I'll bless the Lord at all times. And he didn't say, I'll bless the Lord when I have money. He said, I will bless the Lord at all times. Let's bless the Lord this morning. Hallelujah. Lord, we recognize that it is a privilege and an honor to come before you in prayer. And as we bow our heads this morning, let us know that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And the word tells us that we can take our petitions to God boldly to the throne of grace and obtain mercy and grace in the time of need. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got some needs that I've got to take before the Lord. Amen? So I'm asking that you bow your heads in anything that's that, that might be on your mind that may be hindering you from blessing the Lord in spite of your circumstance, that might be hindering you from blessing the Lord in spite of all that you've been through, leave it. Drop it right now because God says he's looking for those that would worship him in spirit and in truth. And we can go to that throne this morning. So bow your heads with me as we pray. Father God, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And God, we want to give you thanks, God. You've been so good to us, Lord. Yes, it's true that we've been through a pandemic and we've been through all kinds of sickness and diseases. All that's true. Some of us has lost loved ones and during the pandemic and we've lost our jobs. And, but Lord, we're going to bless you anyhow because your word commands us to bless you anyhow. And God, we know that you're able to do that exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. So, Father, we pray that we take a step of faith, believing, Lord, that you're going to do and you're going to finish the work that you've started in our lives because your work says that you're able to finish the work that you've begun. And so, God, we give that to you, Lord. So, Father, we pray this morning for those that are among us in this congregation that may be a little heavy, Lord, that you would touch their hearts, Lord, that you would let them know, God, that you're there for them. You promise never to leave or forsake us, that you're there for us, Lord. And we pray this morning, God, that you would touch our hearts, that those in this Thanksgiving season that may not have a need, God, would look to those who do have a need and be a blessing to them. So, Father, we pray that your spirit would rest, rule, and abide in all of us, Lord. And those of us, Lord, that may be experiencing loss of loved ones, God, I pray that you would touch them, Lord, especially the Widler family, God. I pray that you would touch them this morning, lift the burden, Lord, of grief from them, God, in the name of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that if anyone else is sick among us in this congregation, Lord, that you would heal them, Father, because you have the healing for the nations, Lord, that you would touch their bodies, Lord, that you would show yourself mighty, God. All things that we do, we do it for the glory and the honor of God. We pray for our missionaries that are abroad. 
for those that can't be with us in the holiday season, Lord. We pray for them, Lord. Your word tells us, oh God, that we don't have to be there in the natural form, but the spirit will go before us, God. So I pray that you would give them comfort. Lord, I pray that every home that's represented here, Lord, would be blessed. And Lord, I pray that anybody that's in this place, Lord, that is coming here will go out differently because the word tells us that you can't be in the presence of God and be the same person. So I pray, Lord, that you do some transforming power in the people today, God, that you would touch their hearts, Lord, and, and just transform them, God. Mold us to be like you. We thank you for all that you've done, God. We're so grateful so so grateful and God we're going to thank you for what you're going to do because we have that much faith in you that you'll finish the work that you've begun in our lives in Jesus name amen now the kids and youth are dismissed um, kids usually go out here and youth go through the back so the first service is a flow, so I'm like surprised. There we go. Um, this morning, we are actually wrapping up our series on Jonah. As we've been going through the book of Jonah, we've said that this is really the story of God's love and mercy. And we were first introduced to a Jonah who, um, in, in, in light of how we understand scripture and prophecy, this book almost reads like a satire. And then, like, everything is backwards, right? So we're introduced to Jonah the prophet who's fleeing from God's command. He's fleeing from God's call. And a prophet who, instead of obeying God, is actually disobeying God. We're also then, in the second chapter, we meet a Jonah who, who finally is up against it. You know, we meet a Jonah who not only doesn't want to go out into the world and, and share the message that God has and share the message of salvation for, for these enemies, for these gentiles. We see a Jonah who would rather die than actually save God's enemies or save God's people. And so this Jonah from the belly of a, of a fish in the deep, deep uh, earth is, is crying out to God. And we're reminded through his prayer that God and salvation, the salvation comes from our God, that our God is merciful. And it's a blessing to us that when we cry out, our God hears us. That when we pray, our God listens. And that when we praise, our God actually moves. And so when we get to the third chapter, which we covered last week, we see Jonah has made this turn, right? We see Jonah has repented. He's, he's chosen to follow the way, and he obeys, and he goes, and he gives this message. And in this message, there's revival. There's revival in all of Nineveh as even the king rises up and says, we have fell short. And oh, we pray that in this turning that God will please hear our prayers. And what's fascinating is that as this revival happens, there's this big celebration as the people have repented. Now, if I were writing the book of Jonah, I would have ended right there. I've said this before. I'm a softie. I love what they used to call chick flicks. Now we call them romantic comedies. I love happy endings, right? I don't like spending two hours on a movie or sometimes 10 hours on an audiobook, and you get to the end, you're like, why did I just waste my time, right? Like, I like when things fit together, like when everything's like good. I feel good about myself. That's just me. This is vulnerability time. That's just me. I feel good about myself when the world makes sense. I would have ended in Jonah chapter 3. But the writer doesn't end in Jonah chapter 3. And so when you get to Jonah chapter 4, it's not the happy ending of the repentance of Nineveh and these people saved. When you get to Jonah chapter 4, we now are introduced to a Jonah who, again, is angry, annoyed, frustrated, seething, even in the physical hot sun. Jonah's angry because God is gracious. Jonah's annoyed because God is compassionate. Jonah's frustrated because God is slow to anger. And Jonah's seething because God has chosen to relent. 
because God has chosen redemption, because God has chosen to forgive. And as I thought about it, as we go into this week where our whole world pauses to give thanks, right? I love weeks like this because as a kid, I used to, I remember asking my, my aunt, I was just like, wait, are we only supposed to give thanks this week? You know, it just seems weird. I mean, I get Thanksgiving. I was new to this. I'm not American, right? I wasn't born here, so it wasn't a big deal. Like, like Thanksgiving was just like, oh, cool, no school, right? Like, but it was just weird to me. They're like, now we give thanks. This week we give thanks, you know? It just seems a little weird to me. So I'm still working on it. It's been like 30 years, but I'm still working on it, right? But the idea here, though, is that as we think about Thanksgiving, what are we thankful for, even in reading and going through the story of Jonah? Because Jonah is angry that God is gracious. May we give thanks that our God is gracious. Jonah is annoyed that God is compassionate. May we give thanks that our God is compassionate. Jonah is frustrated that our God is slow to anger. I don't know about you, but I give thanks that the God of the universe is slow to anger. Jonah is seething because our God chooses to forgive and relents from destruction. May we give thanks that our God relents. Because the core question we've said in this book of Jonah as we've gone through this series is, is God's love and mercy truly available for all? And the harder question we've said is, is God's love and mercy truly available for all through me, even today? So if you have your scriptures, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. I'll be reading the whole chapter, Jonah chapter 4. As we go, we'll see Jonah's anger at Yahweh God's hesed, agape, love that works for the good of us all. Starting at verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed up the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have more concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much this morning that you're indeed a God of grace that you're a God of compassion, that you're a God of love, that you're a God of forgiveness. Lord, we're thankful, we're grateful, grateful, grateful that you are indeed the God of the universe, but also the one who's slow to anger. We're grateful, grateful, grateful that you're the God who chooses redemption, who chooses salvation, who chooses to forgive even when we fall short. Even when we temper tantrum, even when we grow angry and frustrated and seething, Lord, you're able to hold all that and then ask us, is it right for us to be angry? 
So God, help us to trust your mercy. Help us to hold on to your compassion. Help us to be inspired by your love. For God, you have called us to go into this world to show your world what your love looks like. And we thank you for showering us with that love. And we thank you now, Lord, that as we go back and end this story of Jonah for this run, we pray that you open our hearts and minds and open our lives that we may hear what you have for us and that we may live lives of thanks. Yes, this week, but also all of our days. In your holy and precious name, amen. amen. You know, now that we're wrapping up the book of Jonah, I thought it'd be good to give you a little bit more background about Jonah. It's very nice of me. You should be welcomed, right? What's interesting about Jonah is that Jewish tradition actually debates, you know, who his mother was. And I think this is fascinating because in Jewish tradition, generally speaking, there's two women that they think might be the, the mother of Jonah. And we actually know more about these two women than actually his dad, which I find interesting because we live in a society that always uplifts men. But God seems to be like, yeah, and the dad, he was just there, right? But these women are very significant. And the two women are either the, the, the widow of Zarephath, right? You remember that story where Elijah goes in and resurrects the son of the widow of Zarephath. So if, that who is, if that's who Jonah is, that would mean that this prophet that we're talking about is the first person resurrected in the scriptures, Right? So there's people who believe that he was the son that Elijah resurrected, right? But then there's other people who are like, no, you got the wrong resurrection. It wasn't that one. It was the second one. So there's some people who would argue in Jewish tradition that says, no, 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 he was the raised son of the Shunammite woman. So the widow of Zarephath raised son is 1 Kings 4, 17, and a couple chapters later in 2 Kings 4, uh, you have the raised son of the Shunammite woman, right? And, and that is actually raised by Elisha. I know it gets confusing. Elijah and Elisha, two different people, right? But it's actually the second resurrection. Now, what's interesting about that is that those people then say, that's why he's called the son of truth, because the Shunammite woman was a Gentile who was outside the kingdom, but she's able to look at Elisha, the prophet of God, and says, that is a man of God, that is a man of truth. I find that interesting, because remember the whole premise of Jonah is what? Go to these Gentiles. And Jonah's whole reaction is like, mm, I'm good. I'd rather like not let them get saved. But if one of these women, the widow of Zarephath, and a Shunammite woman could be his mother, that would make Jonah at best half Gentile. Interesting. He wouldn't go to the Gentiles. But thank God, God went to the Gentiles and brought him in. Amen? Now, what we do know about Jonah's father is even more tricky because it's just one line. All we know about Jonah's father is that he's the son of Amittai. That's it. We don't have a backstory. We don't have a resurrection story. It's not that exciting. It's just like he was there. Like he, son. But what's interesting is that in the Old Testament especially, names hold significance. A couple weeks ago, after the sermon, one of the sermons on Jonah, our own uh, Mike Spellman pulled me aside. He's like, you know what's fascinating? I was like, tell me. You know, he's like, Jonah means dove. And I was like, that is interesting. Because if you go through scriptures from Genesis throughout the New Testament, doves are very, very significant. Now, doves are animals that are created in the beginning, right? Genesis, right? But the first time the dove really shows up on the scene is with Noah. And you remember that story, Noah sends out the dove three times. The first time he sends out the dove is after the rains had stopped, right? And the dove hovers, 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 and there's nowhere to land. So Noah knows there's still water. The second time he sends the dove, the dove actually comes back with what? Uh, 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 I, was, I almost said lips the first service. I almost said it again, right? But the dove comes out with an olive branch between its beak, right? Showing that there's signs of life. And the third time the dove said, deuces, I'm out. Like, it's dry land. I'm good. No more Noah, right? That's what happens. But then as you go through the Old Testament and the New, a new picture of dove, it becomes more symbolic. Even in our Brethren in Christ, the symbol becomes more embodied of what? The Holy Spirit. 
In fact, when Jesus is baptized, remember that? The, the Holy Spirit descends like what? Like a dove. And God looks at Jesus and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So then over Christian tradition, since that point, you have this other iteration of the dove where it becomes what? A symbol of peace. Even in our culture, who we swear we're not Christian, right? But even our culture that swears it's not Christian, when someone says what? I want to extend an olive branch to you. I want to extend peace to you. Guess where it comes from? Noah and Christian tradition, because the dove brought back peace. Now, it's interesting because names have significance. For example, David means beloved, and we know that David was what? The man after God's own heart. Isaac means laughter, and he was the son of joy who brought laughter and joy to his parents because he was the son of promise. Or Ruth, which means friend. And what a friend Ruth was to Naomi. After they had lost everything, she looks at Naomi and says, I will go where you go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Names are significant. But Jonah being a true satire, everything is flipped. Because Jonah the dove, right, and his name comes from the Jewish meaning of dove. Jonah the dove doesn't come as a sign of life. He comes to bring death and destruction upon Nineveh. Jonah the dove doesn't come representing the Holy Spirit. In fact, he runs from the Holy Spirit, runs from the call of God. Jonah the dove doesn't come to bring peace, but to bring trouble and desolation to Nineveh. Now, what's also interesting is that Jonah is called the son of Amittai. Amittai in the Hebrew goes to this idea of truth. Amittai is a version of truth. So some translation will say he's the son of truth. And I'll tie it to, to the, the Shunammite woman in Elisha, right? So Jonah is Amittai, son of truth. But if you look at the Hebrew a little bit closely, it's not just Jonah, son of truth. It's Jonah, son of my truth. And I think that's significant because one of the challenges of Jonah is to not just read this story and be like, look how crazy and wild he is and out there, but to realize that sometimes, maybe, just maybe, Jonah is mirroring us. And what a society and culture we live in, because what do we say? My truth matters the most. And I think Jonah, I don't know where we are right now. Like we used to be postmodern, then we were post-postmodern. I think we're on the third post now, so we might be post-post-postmodern. Whenever you figure it out, let me know. But as these post-post-post-post-post-postmodern, we're really just grandchildren of the Enlightenment. And of all the good the Enlightenment did, it put humans at the center of everything. It made us even more now and ever the centers of our own universe. It made my truth matter more. And that's very, very critical because we can relate to that because that's the culture we live in. That's the people we are apart from Jesus or maybe even in Jesus. That's the people we are. We elevate our truth, our story above all else, right? We can relate to Jonah on that level. But what's interesting is Jonah's truth isn't just I'm a son of my truth, but he's a son of his truth as he sees fit. And what is Jonah's truth? Jonah's truth is that Assyria is an enemy. And for him, it's just black and white. They've been an enemy in the past. <laughs> they're an enemy right now. They'll be an enemy in the future. Black and white, God, they're bad, we're good, kill them. What else is Jonah's truth? Well, Jonah's fundamental theology and his understanding of not just God, but how God works in the world is simply this. Jonah believes in retributive justice. And what that means is that crime equals punishment. But it has to be proportional, right? So, for example, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a life for life. Now, a lot of us will be like, well, I mean, that seems so ancient. You know, that's, that's the law of Moses, but we have a new covenant. Or, or like, we're way far from Hammurabi. We don't do the code of Hammurabi anymore, right? But then you look at our modern law, right? If you jaywalk, there's a punishment for that. Most of you didn't know that because you do it every day, like me. 
If you speed, there's a punishment for that, right? If, if you run a stop line, there's a punishment for that. So even baked into our law, modern law, is, 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 is you do something, there's a proportional punishment for it. And I think that's important because that's passed down. But even deeper than that, because that's just the laws that most of us broke this week, right? Like, we're not going to air anything out, you know? You just keep that between you and God, and hopefully you don't go to jail. But that's just the laws we broke this week. But I think even deeper than law being proportional is we still live under Mosaic law. We still live under this code of Hammurabi. I don't know if you remember, but when September 11th happened, I was a student at Messiah. I remember sitting there watching it and all around. And I remember the weeks later, not just the pain and the trauma of everything we suffered, but I remember the weeks later and the months later how this country was galvanized and the Christians were mostly quiet as this country was galvanized to say, what? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Let us go and kill. And we went to war. And I know September 11th was a tragedy, but if you have time this week, I want you to go back and see Baghdad and look at how much this country has bombed Baghdad and look at how many people have died because we believe eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Because we too have believed that America and empire and death and life for life is the way to go. But even closer to home, I want you to think about that we still live in a country that largely believes in the death penalty. And when I was a kid, I had a friend who says, let me get this straight. We kill people to show that killing people is wrong. We still believe that people are redeemable. We still believe that that's the way to go. And it's not lost on me that most of the countries in this country that still believe in the death penalty are in the South where they killed and lynched people like me and enslaved us. And that's not lost on some of us. But we still live under this modern code that says death penalty is okay. So let's not look at Jonah like he's wild and he's out there. He's doing the same thing that we do today, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We may look like Assyria when we believe that. We may even look like America when we believe that. But hear me on this. We do not look like our Jesus when we do that. But that's where Jonah's coming from. He believes in retributive justice. One uh, Jewish scholar said it like this. Jonah sees sin. And it's black and white. You sin, you suffer, you die. God, praise God, be thankful for God, because God doesn't just see sin, God sees the person, and when God sees the person, God also sees the repentance. Abraham Joshua Heschel, who's probably the greatest Jewish mind in the modern era, a man who not only uh, argued against and gave consciousness for people who stood up to, again, war and the Nazis, but a man who was Jewish in this country and who fought alongside civil rights leaders and marched with them. Abraham Joshua Heschel says it like this, we like Jonah, when we want justice and make things right, we're only doing it out of anger. But praise God that God doesn't just see the sin. Praise God that God doesn't just see the anger and hold the anger. But praise God that God introduces what he calls the mystery of compassion. Our God is good. So as we think about Jonah and Thanksgiving, we see that his truth that mattered above all things was that he believed in retributive justice. None of us sinned. None of us should die. Nineveh fell short. Nineveh doesn't belong in the kingdom. And if Jonah could ignore his own Gentile heritage, if Jonah could ignore what the scriptures had thought, the tradition had thought, if Jonah could ignore all those things because of his truth, how much more do we need to be mindful of what our truth is doing? 
And I want to unpack that a little bit more. Because as a prophet of God, Jonah should have known about three things. The first one is this Jewish idea of teshuva. When I explained it last week, I said it's shuv, which is the base word, which is repentance, which is this idea of turning the car around, right? Going the wrong way, saying, yes, I'm sorry, but I'm going to turn the car around. I'm going to get on the right path. I'm going to get to my destination. I'm going to keep doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But teshuva kind of brackets the whole idea of shuv. And what teshuva is basically is this, the ability to repent and to be forgiven by God. That's important because it dominates all of Jewish thought. How they understand and relate to God is that our God is the God of Teshuvah. Praise God that he has the ability to not just hold our anger, to not just hold our sin, but to forgive us when we repent. As a prophet, Jonah should have known that this was about God. In fact, this is so important to the Jewish people that when they gathered their Talmud, and the Talmud wasn't just the law, it wasn't just their theology, it was their cultural life. Like, if you want to follow God, you follow the Talmud. These are the rules. And in the Talmud, they have this teaching that says this, Yahweh, right, which is God, but is the God who was, the God who is, the God who will be, the God who's with us now. Yahweh, God, created Teshuvah, before the cosmos. That means they believe that God created repentance before he ever created the world. Now, most of us weren't there, so we can't argue about this, but the point they were making is that understanding God as a God of repentance is so important. It's more important than this world which you see. It's more foundational than this world which you see. Repentance is God. And Yahweh created Teshuva before the cosmos. And the third thing that Jonah should have known, not just Teshuva that God forgives, not just the Talmud that God has forgiveness as the core of his being, but also the Tanakh. The Tanakh was the scriptures. Now, we call it the, the, the Old Testament. Now, shockingly, Jewish scholars don't like that because for them, it's not old. This is the Testament. This is the scriptures. They call it the Hebrew Bible. Tanakh is, is, is this compound world that combines Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, and they put them together, take the first couple letters from each, and they have Tanakh. Because the Torah is the law, the Nevi'im is the prophets, the Ketuvim is the writings, and all of those come together to form the Hebrew scriptures. So Jonah should have known Teshuvah, that God forgives. Jonah should have known the Talmud, that God and repentance is, is so core to God's being. And Jonah should have known the Hebrew scriptures, because in those Hebrew scriptures, he would have seen the repentance of God. He would have seen when Adam and Eve sin, God comes and God says, listen, Adam, I will send a son, a Messiah, a Savior, who will crush this devil and kill and destroy death once and for all. He should have known that God would have came to Noah and says, I know the earth is flooded. I know it's destroyed, but don't just look at the rainbow in the clouds. Know that I will never destroy you again. He should have known that God goes to Abraham and says, Abram, I through faith will make your descendants by their belief greater than the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. He should have known about David, Israel's greatest king, that God says, David, oh, you think you're king now, but it's a son coming through your line who will be my son, the Messiah, the savior of the world. He should have known his scriptures and what his scriptures said, and the scriptures would have revealed that God covenants to save us, that God's redemption is always part of the plan, and that redemption isn't just for Israel, it's for the world. But he should have also known that God saves. Because if, if teshuva is the core thinking or the core ideology of the Jewish people, the core movement is the exodus. It's when God says, I heard your pain. 
I heard you crying and dying in slavery, and I will send a redeemer named Moses to bring you up out of slavery. He should have known that that whole story of the Exodus is about God redeeming his people, saving them from slavery, and bringing them into the promised land, and establishing a new relationship, a new kingdom, a new people, a kingdom of priests, men and women to follow him and to be a light to all the nations. He should have known that. Or maybe he missed the Sunday school or the synagogue school lesson when it was about Abram and Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom and Gomorrah would have been just like Nineveh. They were looking to make Assyria great again. They were living for themselves. They were not taking care of the least of these and, and the disadvantaged people. They were suffering people. And remember what Abraham does. He goes to God and he prays and he begs and he bargains. And he says, God, listen, I know they ain't living right. But if there's any righteous people in there, can you save them? And he whittles the number down and down and down and down. And Jonah should have known that. When we pray, our God listens. When we pray, our God moves. That our God's desire is not to destroy, but to redeem. So if you're following along, Jonah is saying, my truth, that God should be about black and white retributive justice, it supersedes God. Right? It supersedes his ability to forgive. My truth has to matter more than that. He's saying my truth has to matter more than theology, which is tradition of people who follow God for generations, and they've curated it and said, this is what we mean to be faithful to God. My truth has to supersede that too. And then he's even saying, yes, my truth has to supersede the scriptures. And that's the danger is when we elevate our truth above God, thinking that we can love better than God thinking that we're more compassionate than God, we're more merciful than God, we're more accepting than God, we are more God than God. But if it also supersedes our tradition, which is the years of faithful Christians who saying this is how God has revealed himself to us, we're willing to throw all that out because of our truth. And if we're willing to throw out the scriptures too. And I'm not saying scriptures is a fourth member of Trinity because that doesn't work, Trinity is three. But I'm saying what God has revealed in the scriptures is our path to life. And Jonah is saying that my truth, that God needs to be about retribution and crime equals punishment, has to supersede who God is, what God's revealed, and what God said through his people. But what you find in chapter 4 is that even though Jonah has deluded himself into thinking that his truth matters more than God, and thinking that his truth matters more than theology of, of his people, and that his truth matters more than, than the scriptures, is Jonah's angry and annoyed because what he finds in Nineveh is that even that he's deluded, his truth does not supersede God's love. And that's why he's frustrated. Because he's saying, I can ignore all these things. But what I can't ignore is that God forgave Nineveh. And I'm angry about it. And so he starts off in the midst of this anger. So just like the elder son in Luke 15, the parable of the lost sons, instead of celebrating the lost had come home, he says, God, I've been here. I've been faithful. I've been good. I've been true. Why are you not throwing a party for me? Why are you celebrating that lost son? Or in this case, those lost Ninevites, why are we celebrating them? I'm the one who's good. And so instead of celebrating... Jonah finally gives us a reason why he ran away. And why did he run away? He ran away because he knew God would forgive. He ran away because he knew God is merciful. And like a proper kid having a proper tamper tantrum, he insults God in some of the best ways God probably has ever insulted in Scripture. Right? His insults go like this. God, I knew you were gracious. 
God, I knew you were a compassionate God. I knew you were slow to anger, and I knew you were abounding in love, and I knew you relent from sending calamity. And the tragedy of it all is that obviously God isn't sitting there like, I am so insulted you think I'm a good person. <laughs> you think I'm a good God, not even person, right? I'm so insulted that you think I'm slow to anger. The tragedy of it all is that Jonah's anger so envelops him that he would rather die yet again than to live with a God who forgives, than to live with a God who forgives his enemies, than to live with a God who, when he sees repentance, who, when he sees people not just saying, I'm sorry, but actually turning their lives around and following him, he's so upset and angry that God would forgive this after Jonah's tamper tantrum, after he insults God for being merciful and good and compassionate and slow to, slow to anger, right? After all of that, after he says, God, I'd rather die, in the English we read, but the Lord God, Yahweh, replied, is it right for you to be angry? And if you hear some that in English, you're like, yeah, God is like, God's just chilling, you know? It's just like he's tamper tantrum, and God's like, is it right to be angry? But if you dig a little bit deeper into the Hebrew, I think a closer or a better translation would say it like this. Doest thou well, does it do you good to be this angry? I think that's a little bit more than is it right to be angry. Because if I say is it right to be angry, I'm looking at the justification of Noah. I'm looking at uh, Jonah. I'm looking at the justification of like, are you even right to be this mad? But what you see is God isn't even arguing with Jonah. Because I think if you just read is it right for you to be angry, you might think there's an argument going on, but there's no argument. God is God. God is right. God is the one who's compassion and mercy and healing and grace and all that. God is not arguing with Jonah. God is looking at Jonah in the midst of his temper tantrum and saying, what is this anger doing for you? How is this anger making you well? How is this anger making you, my dove, a dove to the nations? What is this anger doing to you? Does it do you well to be this angry? And guess what Jonah does? He ignores it, right? Like God, it's, it's like, it's not, I've done this before. I know you guys are perfect. I'm not perfect, right? But sometimes when you mess up, I know you gotta, you gotta use your imagination I mess up. You gotta use your imagination. But sometimes when you mess up and someone calls you out on it and it hits so deep, what do you do? You just step right over it and be like, but that's not what I wanna talk about. I wanna talk about my anger. I wanna talk about why I'm mad at you for doing this, right? So Jonah does that, but I think he does it even more um, incredibly. Because God doesn't argue with him. God isn't saying your anger is misplaced. God isn't even saying I'm frustrated with you, which I'm frustrated with Jonah just reading and studying this, right? God doesn't do any of that, right? God just says, but Jonah, does it do you well to be this angry? And Jonah ignores that. He leaves the city. And guess what he does? He goes on a hill and makes a shelter. And I find that fascinating. And it's fascinating and also tragic because for Jonah, He's like, God, I hate that you're merciful. I hate that you're forgiving. But I also know that these people are evil. So I'm just going to wait till your mercy runs out <laughs> and the judgment comes. And he literally pitches a tent and makes a shelter on the hill to wait and see the destruction. And I thought about that this week. And I was challenged with this idea is that how many of us are doing the same thing? How many of us are pulling out our chairs and pitching our tent on the hill and just looking at the world around us waiting for its destruction. How many of us are looking at the world around us and just waiting for it all burn up, right? 
Because even that's not biblical. Even that is not scriptural. Even that doesn't look like Jesus. Because here's the thing. When you get through the book of Revelation, at the end you realize something is that heaven comes down is that God is not going to blow up the earth and start over. But God is going to what? Redeem this earth that we live in. That God is going to reconcile and bring all things right, but he's going to redeem this earth and heaven's going to come down. So your job isn't to sit back and say, God, burn it all down. Look at these heathens, right? Look at these non-Christians. Look at these people not living right. Burn it all down. Your job isn't to be Jonah. Your job is to be like your Jesus. And your Jesus isn't sitting down watching the world burn, it's rolling up your sleeve and walking into the fire. The world isn't just to talk about all the things that are wrong in the world. The job is to go in there and say, where's my light? Where's my sister or my brother with light? Let's put this light together to shine in this darkness. Because jo Jonah is so angry and he so misunderstands God that he's like, you know what? When your mercy runs out, I want you to burn it down, and I'm going to sit here and watch. And maybe they didn't have popcorn back then. In my head, Jonah's almost like sitting there eating his popcorn, waiting for the desolation and destruction to come. But something interesting happens, right? And again, God's not frustrated with Jonah. I think there's so many of us who are angry with God, and we feel bad. You know, like, like our anger God's never dealt with before. It's like, oh, I'm so mad right now, and God's like, I just can't handle this. I know ooh, this anger is a little bit bigger than me, you know, like this frustration you have, this, mm, this hate that you have in your heart, like I just have never seen this before. I've been around forever, you know, I've done with literally billions of people, but you, you're different, right? That's how we seem to think of our anger. And I love that in this passage, God never, ever makes Jonah feel small for his anger. God holds it and says, but, but is it good for you? <laughs> Like, does it do you well to be this angry? And even here, while Jonah is seething and misunderstanding and still probably praying in his heart that God would destroy Nineveh, the sun comes up and it starts shining down on him. And what does God do? God provides a tree to rise up from the ground and to be shade over him, right? And then and overnight, God sends a worm and the, the worm eats the plant. And now the sun comes up again and Jonah's so mad this time. He's like faint in it and weak in the sun. And again, he says... I would rather die than to live under this hot sun. And God says, but, but, but Jonah, is it even right? Does it do you well to be this angry about a plant? And Jonah's answer is, yes, it makes me, I want to read actually, because I'm reading my English translation. But God said in chapter nine, verse 9, but God said, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. Isn't it, is it, is it well, right? Does it do you well, Jonah, to be this angry about the plant? And Jonah's answer seems to be, yes, it does me well, even if I have to die. And then God shifts the scene, and God provides the answer and purpose. And he says, you've been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? I love this passage. It's a shout out to the vegans among us. And those animal lovers, it's a shout out to you too. But it warms my African heart, warms my African heart that God wants to save the animals, probably for the people to kill and eat, but that's a different thing, right? But God wants to save the animals too. But I think what we miss in this passage is what Jonah missed. Because God says you're worried about the wrong thing. 
and there's a subtle, not so subtle, the more you read it, <laughs> teaching in this is that like, the world is on fire. Why are you pitching a tent watching? The world is on fire and I've blessed you with comfort or I've blessed you with, with some kind of protection or blessing. Are you using that to feel good about being comfortable? Or are you using that to help? Because what happens when the comfort leaves? Would you rather die than to actually do my work? There's a not so subtle teaching that God is saying to Jonah, but even greater than all of that, I think what God is saying to Jonah is this, my brother, my son, my child, you're worried about the wrong thing. You're worried about the wrong thing. You're worried about whether or not they need to be destroyed. That's the wrong thing. You're worried about this plant, which you had nothing to do with. Like, it's me. Like, I made the plant for you. Like, why are you worried about the plant? But Jonah, are you more worried and concerned about the plant than 120,000 people who just chose to follow me? You're worried about the wrong thing. I think that's one of the messages in this Jonah story. Not that we can't be angry, not that we can't be frustrated, not that God can't hold our anger or our frustration, but are we worked up and angry about the wrong thing? Because what God is doing, how God is working, how God is moving is to save the lost. But salvation isn't just saying, I follow you. <laughs> salvation is saying, I am making you my Lord. I'm coming under you. I am not. My truth doesn't matter the most. But what you say is truth. That's what matters the most. I'm going to take up my cross and follow you. I'm going to turn my life around. And I'm not just going to say I'm going the wrong way. But I'm actually going to turn the right way and get back on track and do what you've called me to do. Are we concerned about the lost? Are we concerned about people's actual challenging God and, and, and actual salvation? Are we concerned about the world on fire and us going with, with not just light, but also with water to put it out to? Or are we just concerned about our truth mattering? And so when I thought about Thanksgiving this week, right? And I thought about how most of us will stop and do give things. I thought about the lesson of all this is that even though Jonah missed it, we don't have to. I thought about certain things that I'm thankful for, and I want to invite you this week. I know you can do it some other times this year, but we're in America, so Thanksgiving week, right? But I want to invite you this week to just squirrel away some time, maybe five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, right? Just write a list. In fact, I would challenge you to write till you, your hand hurts, so you stop, right? But just write the things you're thankful for. I just want to give you a few that I'm thankful for. Because I think that if we give thanks to God for who God is and what God's doing and what God's done and what God will do, it will help us not miss who God is and what God wants to do through us. So give thanks this week that God sees your repentance and forgives you. Give thanks that God's forgiveness is bigger than the whole entire cosmos, the universe, the world that you see. Give thanks that God's love is compassionate and kind. Give thanks that God is indeed gracious that God is slow to anger, and that God is abounding in love. And it's not just the love I love you. It's the love that works together for our good. It's the love that led Jesus to the cross. It's the love that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the love that sent the Spirit to live inside of you. It's the love with Jesus sent you into the world to represent him. God is abounding in love. Give thanks. And I love that question in the Hebrew. Does it do you well to be this angry? Give thanks because God's desire is for you to be well. 
and I thought about how well it relates to the Hebrew idea of shalom and harmony and peace. And I thought about all the ways that Jonah consistently breaks shalom. He's not at peace with God. He disobeys God. He argues with God. He insults God. He doesn't follow anything God says, right? And when he does it, he almost does it begrudgingly. He's definitely not at peace with the cosmos because, listen, a fish swallowed a man up, right? Like, like the ocean was tossing by, right? He's not at peace with his neighbors. Even though he might be half Gentile, he doesn't want to see those on the outside saved. Like, he's not at peace with his neighbors. But here's the other one. He's not even at peace with himself. And that's why he's struggling here in Jonah chapter 4. Yet God desires us to be well. God desires you to be right with God, right with the world around you, right with your neighbors, and even right with yourself. God desires for us to be well. Give thanks for that. Give thanks. God's provision is always near. Whereas the breath you breathe or the memory you have of his goodness or the way you'll see him move in your life this week or the way he'll use you to help and touch someone else, God's provision and blessing is always near. Give thanks that God knows us but still gives us mercy. And this one's the most humbling to me, that God knows everything about me and still chooses to love me. And we can all say that. That the God of this universe knows everything about you, your deepest, darkest secrets, all the ways you fail and fall short, all the good you leave undone. And yet he still loves you. Give thanks for God's mercy. And then give thanks. Because Jonah may have gotten it wrong, right? But give thanks. Because God is sending you as God's dove into the world. To preach life, not death. To preach grace, not punishment. To preach healing and salvation and redemption. And to preach that God is a God who loves. That God is a God who's merciful. That God is a God who's compassionate. Give thanks to God. Send you as a dove, empowered by the Holy Spirit within, to be his witness to the world. Give thanks to God. Send you as a dove to be the peacemakers who look like his son, Jesus I'd like to invite Pastor Hannah and Tapestry back up. We're going to sing with a song that may be familiar to a lot of you, singing about, I just want to thank you, Lord. And as they come up, I want to challenge us to think about all the ways we have to be thankful people. All the things, yes, that God's done for us. All the ways, yes, that God showed up for us. But all the things we can thank God for. If there's any pastors in the room, I'd like to invite them up as well. We'd love to pray for you. We're going to be up here. We'll pray for you for anything you've got going on. Whether it's you want to come up and say, I'm just thankful for this, and I want a prayer of praise, we'll pray for that too. If there's something in the sermon that moved in you or something that you're struggling with, we'll pray for that too. If there's someone on your mind that you want to pray for, we'll pray for that too. But as we sing this song of thanksgiving, I want us to be reminded that Jonah may have missed it. And actually, I have a list of people I can't wait. Everyone, even when I was a kid, people were like, when I get to heaven, I want to be with Jesus. I'm like, that's cool and all, right? Like, Jesus wants to be with all of us. I don't know how that's going to work out, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to list. I want to see this person, this person, this person, this person. And one of the people on my list is Jonah. I want to ask him, Jonah, 